And every so often you do an item in studio where you go, oh God, I'm in safe hands here. I'm just in so safe hands. I'm a little baby and I'm going to get cradled because the person who's going to do the next item, he just, the red light goes on and he just takes it away and you're just in the hands of a maestro. And of course, that is the great Paul McLoon from Today FM. Welcome, Paul. Well, no pressure or anything now. <laughs> Not at all. It's a great build-up. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know what always happens after a great build-up? Yes, indeed. Crushing disappointment. No, no not, not in your case. Before we start, actually, and before you tell us the story behind the song today and what song that is, mm. uh, just your memories of John Hume, of course, a fellow Dairyman. Oh, uh, yes. <clears throat> um, obviously, it doesn't need saying. I'm a massive figure, a giant, uh, not just in Derry, obviously, but in, in Irish politics. And uh, sad time. Um but I think there was a lot of... I, I watched the funeral and uh, it was beautiful service, actually. Oh, made all the more poignant, I think, for the fact that because of the COVID restrictions, it was quite, quite sparsely attended. But the people who were there were, you know, the great and the good. And uh, the guy who put together the music for um, the, the whole service, who's a friend of mine, Frank Gallagher, uh, did an amazing job. It was just very, very moving. But I think what it kind of illustrated, there was a few shots outside the, the St. Eugene's Cathedral, which is actually the literally two, 200 yards away from the house I grew up in. And uh, the people were assembled there in the rain because it's Derry, of course, and it's a funeral in Derry, so it's raining. Um, but it was really very moving to watch. And I think there was a... Uh, the sadness was tempered with a great deal of gratitude and uh, gratitude towards and pride of uh, John Hume because, you know, he was he was a Derry man through and through and uh, he absolutely bled Derry. And, you know, people will always be very respectful to him for that, I think. Even his political opponents on his own side of the of the sectarian divide, you know, I mean, obviously there were big differences between SDLP and Sinn Féin in their respective political positions. And the Hugh Adams thing, of course, uh, at the time was something that just brought him such, such a lot of, uh, not just inconvenience and hassle and abuse, but actual, you know, danger. I mean, it was a dangerous thing to have done, and he was absolutely vilified in certain quarters for having done it. And, of course, it turned out it was absolutely the correct thing to have done at the time. He knew that. He was a, a, a very insightful, uh, a very visionary sort of man, and also, I think, crucially, a very stubborn one. Yeah. Um, once he decided on a course of action, that was, that was what he was going to do, and he would repeat and repeat and repeat the message over, I think he called it a single transferable speech, uh, <laughs> over and over again, <laughs> literally throughout decades. And I mean, that was a measure of of the man. I, I think he was maybe a little oversimplified a lot by the, by the media, particularly yes. since his death. Uh, India, a, a kind of a slightly one-dimensional picture of him as, as merely a peacemaker and merely a kind of a why can't we get all along sort of... Um, I mean, he was that. Obviously, he was that. But it was it, he was much more complex than that. And he was, um, he did believe in 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 the reunification of of the island. He did believe in pursuing it through uh, exclusively nonviolent means. But politically, he was on that side of the argument, and uh, he was a political, uh, a real political maneuver. Yeah. Maneuver. You know, he he really um, he 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 was a very adept politician, an extremely smart man, a deeply. Uh, spiritual and soulful man and he had many many facets to him that I think have been kind of I guess it's inevitable when you achieve something huge uh, that is history making and era defining that you become 
defined by it yeah. and the aspects of your character that are thought to have most contributed to it. But, you know, there's so much more to him. And you met him on a number of occasions. Yes. Uh, I didn't know him uh, personally as, as a friend, although many of my family did. Um, but I did, I did bump into him, particularly because I was, you know, I worked at BBC Radio Foil, so he'd be, you know, it was, he, he was in there every day, um, particularly in the run-up to the, uh, the the big events of, of, you know, the peace process as it, as it churned and occasionally stalled and frustratingly kind of came off the rails and then they'd have to put it back on the rails. And that was a very convoluted period of time in the 1990s, uh, culminating with the Good Friday Agreement, of course. But I remember particularly one day, um, it was the day of the announcement of the initial IRA ceasefire. And now I'm not great on years. I'm thinking maybe 94, I could be wrong. Um, and uh, th- on that particular day in BBC Radio 4, it was a little small uh, small building, uh, the BBC sort of dairy outpost. So it's not a huge place. And quite literally, the press from around the world had descended on our little station for that day because the announcement was coming and Hume was going to talk about it. So John Hume basically went up a stepladder in in the middle of the the, the upstairs foyer of Radio Foyle, up through a skylight under the roof of the building. And there he basically held court with, you know, Sky and CNN and the BBC, of course, and whoever else. And it was a beautiful day, some sun was shining. Uh, John was practically levitating with with the achievement of of the of the whole thing. And it was a giddy kind of day. It was a giddy sort of circus atmosphere in the place. And you know, I was running around making cups of tea for Kate Eddy and whoever, you know, and it was kind of mildly surreal, but brilliant. And the gen the genuine sense of relief and joy, and not just in Derry, but throughout the North and I I, I would have thought in the Republic as well, was 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 palpable. And so he's he's in his element, and I think John, to be fair, he was a humble man, but he enjoyed his status as as a world statesman. He he reveled in it. He he was very good at it, and uh, he got a lot of respect and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, love for it. So he he enjoyed it. He enjoyed that kind of position, and uh, he was very much in his element, um, talking about where we go from here, and it's the peace and the, you know the ceasefire, and then inevitably, um, that guy used to be on Sky. I forget his Chusa or something or Chusa. Uh, he was a presenter on Sky TV, anyway, Sky News. Uh, I forget his name, apologies for that. But he he was the first that I spotted anyway that kind of went, well, wait a second, this ceasefire now that we're talking about, is it permanent? And this is within hours of it being announced. Hume's still up on the roof doing doing his bit with CNN. And he got asked that, and John was going, well, it's a complete cessation of, a complete, uh, uh, cessation of violence. And you're, yeah, but is it permanent? And John didn't like this line of inquiry one bit. He just thought it was nitpicking. He thought it was kind of potentially throwing a spanner in the works. He proved, it turned out he was right. And he was furious. I remember him being absolutely just so annoyed that on this day, somebody would just start to kind of go, well, you know, is it permanent? And particularly directing it at him when he'd worked so hard to get it. And uh, I just remember him st- walking around fuming going it's what what do they not get it says a complete cessation of violence what the, what, permanent why why you know and he was just basically ranting at, at, at whoever would listen about this because he was genuinely angry and upset that that um it would be parsed and kind of the the the, the syntax uh, kind of deconstructed yep. in this way just to kind of make a sort of a slightly uh, slightly mischievous kind of point um and of course the permanent thing did become uh, a, a major kind of bugbear in the months and years that followed, and in fact, you know, the, the, the ceasefire did go through a couple of periods where it, it, it collapsed. But 
John Hume being John Hume and everybody else involved, of course, uh, got it over the line in the end. And aside from that, um, apart from being a producer on Radio Foil, mm. you had a, some people out there need to be reminded that mm. you, you had a peculiar sort of on-air uh, persona yes. uh, that used to appear on the the airwaves. Um, as as explain that to people as the <laughs> well the Sinn Fein um, as indeed I think was the case in the Republic. Sinn Fein um, at a later point in history, Margaret Thatcher decided to ban uh, the voices of Sinn Fein from um, the British media, radio, and TV. Um, however, whatever way they'd um, constructed the, the, the legislation on it, um, somehow they left a loophole that you couldn't actually hear the voice of Jerry Adams or Mitchell McLaughlin or whoever else, but you, you could see their images, but if the, if the words were spoken by someone other than them, an actor, then you could broadcast the interview. So the media, who were really very much opposed to the banning of, of Sinn Féin, even if, even if individuals in the media would have been politically hostile to them, the, the journalist in them was very opposed to the, to the ban. Um, so they jumped on this, and uh, a little coterie of, of voices was assembled, my, my own being one, uh, one of several. Um, and we'd, there'd be a bunch of us in Belfast and a couple of us in Derry. And when the interviews would come in, we'd sit in a little room, we'd listen back to the interview, we'd kind of try to repeat the words and get the cadence as close as possible because, you know, how you say something is everything in terms of the meaning. Uh, so I at least would try to do that. And it got to the point where, again, in, in that very intense period leading up to the, the initial ceasefire, Sinn Féin were on a lot because every word that was coming from the mouth of Sinn Féin had import. So they'd be on all the time. And I would be asked in all the time to kind of do Martin McGuinness. And Martin, God bless him, actually got to the point where he would ask, he kind of go, is, uh, is uh, Paul McLoon going to be available to you? <laughs> I was told this, uh, where he'd kind of specify, go, will you come in, Martin, have a quick word? Mm. Yeah, can, uh, can McLean do it? Like? So, I uh, prefer Mario Rosenstock doing me, if you don't mind. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, so there you go. It was kind of like that, except you were Brilliant. doing it on the news. And, and then on the day, funnily enough, the, the, day of, the day of the ceasefire and Kate Eddy and the cup of tea and uh, John Hume getting very annoyed with Sky TV, um, was, I think, the same day, at least in my mind, it's melded into the same day as John Major stood up in the House of Commons and announced that the... Uh, the media ban was at an end, uh, which meant effectively I was out of a job. Ah, Paul, we've got about five minutes okay. left, which, which means you, you've talked us into the ground already. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand it over to you completely almost to okay. monologue this. Tell me what's the story behind which song today and off you go, Paul McLean. Well, Mario Rosenstock, we are going back to the spring of 1993. The band are New Order, the great New Order. And one of their greatest singles, possibly one of their last great singles, was a song called Regret. And what's interesting about it, there's a couple of little stories about it. Um, it was created in the, the, the backdrop to the making of the this record and the album it came from Republic was the collapse of Factory Records in Manchester and Factory Records um, a great label an iconic label the home of Joy Division before New Order Happy Mondays as well and it had become a very successful record label unfortunately uh, successful record labels aren't meant to be run by idealists and uh, you know um, eccentrics uh, and uh, intellectuals, they're meant to be run by business people and Factory um, paid the price of its success eventually because I think you just can't survive. If you don't have hard-nosed business people running a thing, once it becomes a massive commercial success, it's probably not going to last. And such was the case with the added drain of the Hacienda nightclub, of course, on the, on the finances. All of those stories, uh, uh, disastrous but entertainingly so, retold by the great Peter Hook in a couple of his books, which are worth checking out if you haven't read them already. Um, but anyway, against the backdrop of that, New Order are making one of the greatest 
uh, of their singles. And I always loved it because it actually does kind of have that emotion of it's kind of it's kind of positive and it's kind of up, but it's kind of tugging at the heartstrings as well. There's a melancholy to it as well. And I think music that straddles both those things, it gives you melancholy and uplift in one record. I think that's kind of, you're getting very close to the, the actual essential what makes a great record. If it can do both those things in the same moment, I think it's it's touching greatness. And I think that's definitely We the were case talking about this great. last week, yeah, the mixture between an upbeat tempo and, yeah. a, and a very downbeat sentiment. Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of great disco records have it. Uh, it's kind of minor key. It's uplift. It's dance music, but there's a sadness to it, or maybe it's about a breakup, or it's about you know maybe a slightly. Again, I think another thing, if you can bring it in, is that stoic in the face of defeat, in the face of emotional destruction, in the face of uh, you know whatever it is that's going on in your life. You're you're going to carry on. You have that I will survive thing, and regret's got a bit of that too. It's got a bit of that sort of the world is falling apart, but we're going to keep going. Yeah, you know the the opening. The yeah, it sounds. If you can picture that, it sounds like the sun coming out. Exactly, it sounds like the sun coming through the clouds. Dun, 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 and, dun, dun. and for that reason, that's why it was chosen by me uh, as the theme music to the Intensity Breakfast Show because that fir- first chord literally does sound like the sun bursting out of the sky, and uh, it really it's one of the great intros. Just with one big chord, you just go whoa, and of course, in terms of radio, it's a real showstopper. Uh, it just goes boom, and the hairs on the hairs are standing up uh, in my arms the, now, arms, thinking yeah. about the opening chord. Yeah, you know, and if you can do that, you know, you're, you're in a you're in a great place with, with with a record. And of course, it proved to be it was one of their bigger hits. New Order weren't really in the big massive hit business, apart from Blue Monday. Um, they weren't a chart topping band, really, as as we understand it. But that went top five, which was big news for them, and uh, deservedly so. And uh, yeah, we used it on the breakfast show for I think it's it, it stayed it hung in there for a few years. Didn't yeah, it? about seven, anyway, yeah. seven wow. or eight, yeah. Um, and of course, memories of the breakfast show with me, you, and yes. me, the original team, the three of us. Uh, yeah. Three of us basically at the beginning of the Ian Dempsey breakfast show. We didn't know where we were going at the beginning. We didn't know where it would lead. Yeah, um, a bit like Factory Records. They hadn't a clue what they were doing, <laughs> but what they were doing turned out good. I can't wait to see the books. <laughs> oh God forbid! God forbid! I'm not writing one anyway. I'll read Dempsey's one. Yeah, he'll be he'll be nice to both of us. He's been threatening to write that book for a long time. And yeah, yeah. so Paul, you were the original producer of the Ian Dempsey Breakfast Show, which is still going 23, 22 years later. Mm. 22 years later. So you must, have done, you must have set some good template at the beginning. Well, one would like to hope so. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, still in, it's still in great hands and uh, continued success to, to you and it, uh, and Ian. But uh, yeah, they were, they were heady days, my friend. Heady ah, days. they were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, you and I grew up, became, went from being pretty much boys to... Well, still boys, basically. But yeah, well, yeah. I mean, to yeah, yeah. Superannuated adolescence, Steve. Slightly less uh, superannuated, or more superannuated, maybe less adolescent. Yeah, yeah. Your your hair is better now, though. I think <laughs> it's it's so good. <laughs> it is. It's it great. Is. It's a real quaff. I've kind of yeah. I've managed to develop good hair late in life. You really have. Your it's hair uh, it's not the better. usual pattern of male middle age, but I'm grateful for it. It's good hair. Yeah. Paul, um, you've you've exhausted it now, so uh, okay. <laughs> go, off and, go off and introduce this in your best Paul McLean. Right, Pop Pickers, uh, this is the fantastic, the great, the brilliant New Order and the unique brilliance that is Regret. <laughs> 